We'll be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Lori. Uh, I never did introduce myself, in case you're new. My name is Frank, and I'm the lead pastor here at Arcadia. And um, this is always an interesting Sunday morning for us because of the marathon. We're sort of uh, in this little box in Phoenix, trapped by the marathon. So uh, thanks to all of you for braving the, um, the traffic uh, uh, nightmares and, and, and coming this morning. So uh, we are in our second week of a four-week series called God's Family. Uh, At the end of this series, starting on February 8th, we're going to start going through the Gospel of Mark. It'll probably take us about a year and a half to go through that verse by verse. But right now, we're talking about God's family. And uh, I want to review a little bit about what we talked about last week in the first week. Uh, We're looking at this idea of God's family through four different lenses. We're looking at the uh, overarching biblical narrative of creation, that God has created everything good. And then fall, that will be today, creation was last week, fall will be today, that in Genesis 3, sin enters uh, the equation and and the human condition, and everything gets corrupted at that point, and and we have to start dealing with that. Next week, we'll look at redemption, which is essentially Genesis 4 through Revelation 20. It's the bulk of the of the uh, biblical narrative, and we're, we're going to be talking about that next week. And then the last week on February 1st, Super Bowl Sunday, uh, we're going to be looking at restoration, the restoration of all things that Jesus comes uh, to make everything right. And of course, we talked last week also about uh, how do we define family. And, and it would be helpful if you weren't here last week, it would be really helpful for you to uh, get the podcast off the website. It's up on the website and listen to um, the detail with which we went into last week. But just briefly, what we want to say is that while we define family often as the nuclear family and who lives in your house and mother and you know all of that stuff, uh, ultimately what we came down to is we were defining family by those of us who are united by the gospel of Jesus Christ, those of us who are the bride of Christ, the church of of Jesus Christ. And we didn't look at this passage last week. There's many passages that talk about this in in the Bible, but uh, one of the ways that we could look at it is, for instance, in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, towards the end of chapter 1, where he gives us the thesis statement for why he's writing that letter, in verse 27 he says this. He says, therefore, my beloved, live your lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And essentially, the whole letter is about that. But then he goes on to define 
in the rest of chapter 1 and even into the first half of chapter 2 what it means to live a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And essentially he tells us that it involves three things. Number one, and here's where we get the family idea, uh, we are to live uh, unified by one spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. We are to live unified in one spirit. But he also says that we're going to live unified by the fact that we are going to uh, experience common suffering and common persecution as Christians. And then he also says that a, a way to live a life that's ma- uh, that's, that is worthy uh, uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we also live in humility as well. And so we're united by those things. We're united by the gospel. And then we went into Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and we looked at what it means uh, for creation what that means to the family. Now, this is creation without sin. And what we discovered is is that in Genesis chapter 1, God created humanity, human beings. He created man with five uh, identifying features of, of humanity. And they are that we are created as image bearers of God. We talked about that and we said, you know, as you're relating with other people, as you're relating with your family, if we would just remember that we're all image bearers of God, that would be a big help that we were also created as rulers over God's creation. Not rulers in an oppressive way, but rulers in a way where we, we, we create things to make them flourish and we are actually creators of culture. And third, we, were ta- we talked about how we were also created as the pinnacle of creation. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians that we are actually God's masterpiece. Fourth, we were created to be on mission for God. And essentially what that means is that you and I as human beings are to reflect God's goodness here on earth. And then fifth, we were created uh, for God's provision. That we were literally created to be beneficiaries of this great gift that God has given us. And He's given us everything that He's created and He's given us life as well. And then we moved into Genesis chapter 2 where we looked at more detail about the specific creation of the man and the woman and we found that God also created us with five threads or characteristics that enable us to flourish as human beings and those are covenant he created us to be in covenant with one another that we were living for one another second he created us to have this level of intimacy that frankly since sin has entered the equation you and I have never experienced before but that we that we desire and that we pine for. And so we have this, this transparency and authenticity and trust, uh, this intimacy that is really um, demonstrated to us in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. There's also, we were created with this yieldedness to each other, this idea that we were willingly submitting to one another and always looking out for the best uh, for everybody else's interests. And then fourth, we were created obviously to be in community and to be bonded to one another. And then fifth, we were created for generosity and for giving. And and those are those five characteristics of flourishing. And, And let me just say this about the generosity piece. Flourishing almost always happens when human beings are generous rather than taking or receiving. It almost always happens when we're generous. But then it all gets broken. And that's Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 4 today and then a little bit at at, uh, the last part of Genesis as well. But it gets broken. It's known as the fall. And so what we're going to look at today is is how it gets broken, the results of, of the brokenness, the consequences of the brokenness, and then what the gospel, the good news of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, what that provides for us in the midst of that 
which would be humility, grace, and forgiveness. And so let me go back. We're going to actually go through, um, not very deeply, obviously. I could spend, again, weeks on Genesis 3, but we're going to go through all of Genesis 3, including the passage that Lori just uh, read for us. So let me start there. We'll start with those seven verses. I'll reread it again, and we'll kind of get started with unpacking what this fall means. And now the serpent, so that would be the adversary. That would be Satan or the devil. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he came to the woman and he said, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst or the middle of the garden, and neither shall you touch it lest you die. So here's what we need to know. There were thousands and thousands of wonderful fruit trees in the garden that the man and the woman could eat from, and there was only one that they couldn't. But, but what Satan is doing here is he's pointing out to the woman that there is this one that she can't touch and that she can't eat from, and isn't that the one, therefore, that you should desire more than all of these other wonderful fruit trees? Think about the, the vast number of fruit trees they had, and now suddenly the one that they can't eat from becomes the focal point. So Satan has, a, has an agenda, a scheme, a strategy here. And so the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were open. And so they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. One of the first things I want you to see is that this is in the wake of, of the two greatest verses of paradise. The two of the best verses in the Bible. Let, let me read them to you. This is right after verses 24 and 25 in, in chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This is in the wake of intimacy, covenant, yieldedness, uh, bondedness. Uh, this wonderful story. This wonderful paradise. This incredible level of trust that human beings had at one time for one another. It's right there, right in the wake of that. I have a friend, uh, he attends here. Some of you know him. He's a, he's a screenwriter, and he also teaches at the college level. He teaches uh, narratives and storytelling and screenwriting and those kinds of things. And, and he says that the great stories in the world always have what's known as an inciting incident. An inciting incident. In other words, a story will kind of start out and everything's nice and wonderful and good, but then the inciting incident is, is what disrupts what is good. In other words, paradise gets destroyed or the status quo is disrupted or your dream is shattered. And, and then the, for the rest of the story, what you have is this tension because you need to, to, to try and get things back to the status quo or back to the, sta- uh, to the paradise or, or back to what was good. You, you, you need a hero or you need a savior or you need a reversal of the circumstances or you need something to fix it. And so the rest of the story is always a journey back to beauty or even a journey to something that was even, that's even better than what was before. That's, that's sort of the storyline of every great story. And, and you think of 
some movies. I'm a movie guy, so you think of movies, and, and I know this is not the greatest movie in the world, but um, the, the third uh, uh, in the series just came out. So you think of the Taken movies, right? So Taken 3 just came out. And so you think every, every, movie, every movie in the Taken series is the same. Everything's wonderful, and then there's an inciting incident. Somebody gets kidnapped, somebody gets killed, somebody whatever. And, and then the rest, of the, the rest of the story is Liam Neeson trying to fix everything. And eventually he does. And so you have the inciting incident. Certainly the Godfather has an inciting incident in it. Um, think of the Gladiator. Most of you have seen the, the movie Gladiator and, and you have the inciting incident there where Maximus's family is, is murdered and they try to execute, Commodus tries to execute him and then it's this story. Okay, so some of you aren't tracking. All right, how about Finding Nemo? Thank you, all right? The Barracuda is the inciting incident. I got a big fist pump back there, all right? So, but here's one of the things I want you to see. This is really important. A lot of people have the tendency to look at Scripture and go, oh, they're just copying the stories of the world in the Bible. And that's not true. The Gospel doesn't follow the stories of the world. Rather, the stories of the world follow the Gospel. The Gospel is the original narrative with this inciting incident and a need for a Savior. And in fact, one, one scholar says this, there are no original stories in Hollywood. They are all just cheap knockoffs of the biblical story. And then you look also at the way uh, the serpent came at the woman. And, and this is instructive for us too. We need to remember that spiritual attacks are rarely full frontal attacks. You know, when you, again, when you, when you watch movies or read a, a horror novel or whatever, the spiritual attacks are like... Oh, obvious and, and full frontal, but that's not the way it happens in real life. We are involved in, a, in spiritual warfare. Read Ephesians chapter 6. We're involved in spiritual warfare, but it's much more subtle. It, it's much more difficult to detect. It plays on our emotions and uh, on the way we, we think. Uh, the spiritual attacks uh, come, usually come sideways and, and utilize doubt and second-guessing, just like they did here. And then you look at verse 6. And, and verse 6 is what I would call the triad of temptation. The woman looks at, at the fruit of the forbidden tree. And first of all, she says, oh, that, that's probably going to be wonderful to eat. So it appeals to her flesh, to her pleasure. And she sees that it's beautiful. And so it appeals to her eyes. And you and I are the same way. We're always looking for something that that's prettier or glitzy or, or shiny. We're always looking for something better. The grass is always greener somewhere else. So, so it appeals to the flesh, it appeals to the eyes, and then, of course, it appeals to our pride. And it appealed to her pride. It, she saw that the fruit was good to make her wise, and that would, that would give her pride. And then you compare verse 7, which are, are the beginning of the, of the results and consequences of the fall, and you compare it to chapter 2, verse 25, where all that intimacy are, is... And you realize that gone are intimacy. They're scrambling to cover themselves. Gone is the covenant nature of their relationship. They're suddenly looking inward and not outward at each other. And gone is community. There's clear separation and distrust between the man and the woman. And certainly intimacy and community with God are broken as well. Look at the next six verses. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. First time they ever hid themselves from God. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid myself. And God said, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And the man said, the woman who you gave to be. The woman you... I'm just an innocent bystander, man. Hey man, I'm, I, you know, I know I sinned, but I'm an innocent sinner, okay? Because it's all y'all's fault, all right? Throw a little Texas in there for you, all right? The woman you gave me, okay? And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What we get from this is, again, so instructive for us. What was the first sin? Rebellion against proper authority in our lives. How many of us rebel against the proper authority in our lives? And that would primarily be God. And we're constantly rebelling against Him. So that's the first sin, but what's the second sin? Blame shifting. We sin and then we blame others. We sin and then we blame others. Just like it was in the very beginning. And then verses 14 through 19, here come the curses. So God says, well, here's what's going to happen then. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then verse 15 is is, um, God's first promise that He is going to fix this problem. It's known as the proto-euangelion. It's the first good news that we have in the Bible. The first gospel proclamation that we have in the Bible I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Understand that before original sin there was no need for morphine or epidurals. Can I get one high-pitched amen? (laughs) And your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. I'll mention that in just a a little bit more about that in a mention. And then to Adam he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So we see there, we already see that we lost intimacy, we lost covenant, and we lost community. Now we see that we also lose yieldedness. Verse 16 says, To the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, okay? What that means is that now, instead of this wonderful, complementary partnership between the man and the woman, what we have is a power struggle. They're both struggling to see who is going to rule over you. who. That, 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 the phraseology there, your desire will be for your husband, is not sexual. It's, it's, it's not that she loves him so much. What she's desiring is his authority in the home. And he's going to have to now compete with her in order to do that. And you and I both know that this is true to life. There is this constant uh, power struggle between people. And it's not just in marriage. We, we all suffer this in every part of our life. We, we desire power and authority, but the problem is because of sin now, we desire it for the wrong reasons. We desire it because we, we, we want to we, we have it in a proud way and we want to rule and we want to oppress, not in a stewarding way. 
Power is not necessarily a bad thing. It's how we apply it. Authority is not necessarily a bad thing. It's how we apply it and how we want to apply it. And then fifth, gone also is generosity. Think about this. The curse on the man. Work is now toilsome. And so because work becomes hard and toilsome and laborious, gone is generosity. In other words, because we have to work so hard for what we get, now we want to hoard what we get as a result of our work. And we begin to say things like, I worked for this. I deserve it. I should be able to keep it. And so rather than generosity, we, can be, we all begin to experience some measure of greed in our lives. We want to we take things. Listen, before the fall, before sin, there was no sense of what I deserve in the world. None. But now there is. This is what sin has done to us. And I want you to think about this too. Before there was sin in this world, there was no such thing as regret either. Think about all the things that you regret in life. Think about, I think about the things that I regret in my life. I can eventually trace every one of those things back to sin. My own sin. And so the intimacy, the community, the mutual submission, the generosity and the covenant that we once had as a result of this beautiful created order is now, is now gone. And what you and I do is we try to find artificial replacements for this. Because we know just inherently God has placed that desire in our hearts. We know that we want these things, but we try to fill those desires with worldly stuff which is now also tainted and corrupted by sin. And so... It might fulfill us for a moment, but ultimately it doesn't fulfill us at all. The only thing that can fulfill us is God. The only thing that fulfills us is Jesus. It's the Gospel that fulfills us. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, I came so that you would have life and have it abundantly. So all of our focus on the things of the world, it's not that those things are necessarily bad, but we're expecting them to do things that they cannot do for us. We need to redirect that focus and that desire to Jesus. And then uh, chapter 3 wraps up with these five verses. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now think about the backstory to that. Prior to that, Adam and Eve had never experienced physical death before, but God had to go and kill some animals in order to give them their clothing, in order to give them their covering. What, what kind of horror must that have been as they listened to or even maybe watched that happen for the very first time? Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore... The Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So that's the story of the fall. And then, right away, the very next thing that happens in the story, we have a problem with two brothers, two DNA brothers, two blood brothers. And I'm going to read to you the first 16 verses of chapter 4. It's going to be a little bit of a long read, but I want to do that so that you have the full narrative and context of this story that we'll spend the next 8 or 10 minutes unpacking. And it's a story of Cain and Abel. So let me read that to you now. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, 
And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. So Abel was, was a, a shepherd and a herdsman, and, and Cain was a gardener. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. God is warning Cain about his sin. And Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Does this not sound like Genesis chapter 3? It sounds like the same pattern that's, that's uh, going on here. And the Lord said, What is this you have done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. He just murdered somebody and he's being sentenced and he's going, well, that's too much, God. Okay, that's way too much. My, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your, fa- and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugir- fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, and this is an act of tremendous grace and favor to a murderer. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so scholars call Cain and Abel the first human family. Well, we are off to a rip-roaring start, aren't we? How many of you have had, well, no, I won't answer, ask that question, okay? Somebody once said, um, if you want an interesting exercise, read the first four chapters of Genesis, but don't read chapter three. Just skip over it. Read one and two and then read four. When you get to four, you're going to realize you've missed something really big. Well, yeah, you've missed the inciting incident, and that's a problem. You see, sin is broken family. Sin has broken real DNA, brothers and sisters, but it's also broken brothers and sisters in purpose and in mission and in friendship or, or whatever. It's broken all relationships. And I want you to think about this. In one short chapter, Adam had to be persuaded to sin, and then in the very next chapter, Cain could not be dissuaded from sinning, even though he had a warning, a personal warning from God. Some of you are like, I I wouldn't sin if I had a personal warning from God. Cain had no trouble. No trouble whatsoever. And that's the snare that we are all in. And it breaks every family. It breaks every relationship. By the way, you may be asking, well, why wasn't Cain's uh, sacrifice acceptable? In fact, he brought the first one. Abel brought it second. Well, we're not told. However, there is speculation based on the rest of Scripture whenever they look back at this story and reference this story. The speculation is that Abel's sacrifice was costly to Abel and Cain's was not costly to Cain. And I want to make sure you understand 
what we mean by that. Yes, what we bring to God is important, but by that I mean not necessarily the physical offering. You might bring a $100 offering to church and put it in the offering boxes in the back. And that's great, but what God is really interested in is not necessarily that $100, but it's the heart behind the $100. You see, Abel's offering being costly demonstrates faith, first of all. I'm going to give you something that I'm going to miss. And second of all, it demonstrates that he has a heart for God. In other words, it takes faith to give your very best. And it takes no faith whatsoever to give what you really don't need in the first place. I don't really need this. I'll give it to the church. I'll give it to God. And then verses 10-12 through 12 remind us that human sin has a bearing not only on our relationships, but also on the fertility of the earth. Our sin is, has alienated us not only from ourselves and from each other and from God, but it's also alienated us from creation. It's why we have sort of this push-and-pull relationship with, with creation. And then those last three verses are, are really pretty magnificent in light of what's going on here. Even Cain received grace and protection from God. Even Cain. A murderer. He received grace and protection from God. And that mark on Cain, which no one knows what it is, though there's been lots of speculation as to what it is. Tim Keller even says maybe he just wrote mark on his arm. We don't, we, we don't know, okay? But, but that mark did, we do know this, it served two purposes. Number one, it served the purpose to let other, know, other people know that Cain was protected. And you can't mess with him. But the second purpose it served was to remind Cain of his sin. Now think about this. This is actually an act of grace by God. What God is doing with Cain is He's saying, listen, you're a sinner and you need Me. That's the same boat that you and I are in. We're sinners and apart from God, we can do nothing and we cannot save ourselves. Therefore, we need God. We should be reminded of our sin. As miserable as that might make some of us at times, we need to be reminded of our sin because then that reminds us of our desperate need for Jesus Christ, for His Gospel, for His good news, for His fulfillment in our lives, and for His salvation. And so even in the story of Cain the murderer, we see God reaching out, desiring to redeem and restore. God is the ultimate protector and provider if we would only trust Him. And in the Cain and Abel story, we see that perhaps the key verses are actually 7 and 9 because it reminds us that sin is our biggest challenge. It rules over us and its effects are devastating in our lives. Think about what sin does to families, what it does to churches, what it does to work relationships, what it does to every possible relationship. Think about what it did to creation and what it's doing to creation. And, And do you see in this story, do you see in the story of Cain and Abel, Any sign of those five threads of flourishing, any sign of covenant, intimacy, community, yieldedness, or generosity, do you see any sign of that except for what God brings to the table? That's the only time you see the redemption and restoration of those five threads of flourishing. We need Jesus. We need the Gospel. And by the way, to answer the question, yes, we are our brothers and sisters keepers. We are. Don't be a Cain. Don't slough off your responsibility to others. But even as this is broken, let me wrap up today by 
by talking about the story of Joseph. Because in the story of Joseph, we're encouraged, we're challenged, and we're built up by that story. It's the story that we see at the end of Genesis, chapters 37 through 50. It's actually the longest continuous narrative about one group of people that we find anywhere in the Old Testament. And next week, certainly, we're going to look at Abraham. We're going to look at Genesis 12 and 15 because that's where the gospel takes root. But we also see how that root of the gospel in Genesis 12 and 15 bears fruit in the story of Joseph and his family in those last 14 chapters of Genesis. The Joseph family story perfectly presents for us the need that we have and the beauty of humility, grace, and forgiveness. So it's the story of Joseph and his brothers. Some of you know it. Others of you don't. I'm going to frame it for all of us. And literally, uh, the way it's, it's um, headlined in the Bible is that it's really the story of, of Jacob. Okay, Jacob is the patriarch. Jacob is also known as Israel. It's where we get the name Israel from. It's the story of him and his family, and in particular, the story of his 12 sons, the ones that the tribes of Israel are named for. And they were not always a happy clan. Their, their bond and their intimacy and their yieldedness and their generosity and, and all of those things, their sense of covenant, they were broken just like ours are. And they were living in a place known as Canaan, which would be current-day Israel. And this happened approximately 3,900 years ago. And let me tell you something about the family of Jacob. This is important for us to know. They had wealth. They had it all. They had it in the wheelhouse. They had herds and flocks and assets and land and food. They had all the very things that you and I believe will somehow save us from and fix our inciting incidents in our lives. All the things that we're grasping for that think that that's going to somehow fulfill us. They had all of those things and yet they had troubles. And Joseph is the 11th of Jacob's 12 sons, but he's Jacob's favorite. Why would he be his favorite? Isn't the firstborn usually the favorite? You'll have to read the story to figure it out. Just trust me. Joseph was his favorite. And Jacob made the mistake several times of of letting the rest of his family know that Joseph was his favorite. For instance, he made him this beautiful coat. Some of you know know it as the amazing technicolor dream coat. In Scripture, it's known as the the multicolored coat. He made this for Joseph. and, and, And then he gave it to Joseph. And if Joseph had any sense of wisdom, he would have said, thanks, Dad, and then put it in his closet and never brought it out. But he didn't. Instead, he would put it on and he would walk around in front of his brothers. Ha ha, look at me. I'm dad's favorite. Look at me. And then Joseph did something else that wasn't very wise. He had these dreams at night when he was sleeping. And the dreams were about how all of his brothers were someday going to bow down to him and serve him. And not only his brothers, but his mother and his father were also going to bow down and serve him. And, and, and if you ever have a dream like that, keep it to yourself. That's good advice, says Tom Hanks. Keep it to yourself. But Joseph didn't. He went and he gathered up his brothers and he gathered up Jacob and, and Rachel. He said, listen, I got to tell you this dream. Someday you're all going to bow down to me and serve me. Now, was that an endearing thing for Joseph to do? Do you think that that might have sort of drummed up some problems with his brothers? And so one day, Jacob the father sends all of his brothers, except Joseph, with the herds 50 miles away so that the herds could graze. But Joseph got to stay at home. And then a couple days later, Jacob says to Joseph, I want you to go and check on your brothers and bring a report back to me. So now the little pipsqueak is their boss. 
He's their supervisor. And so he goes and looks for his brothers and finally he figures out where they are and the brothers see Joseph coming from far off. And he's wearing the coat, of course. And so the brothers begin to talk to each other before Joseph gets there. And they say things like, here comes that dreamer. And he's wearing that stinking coat. We should do something about him. Yeah, let's kill him. Because he is not the boss of us. Now, I added that last line, but it fits here, okay? But they said all those other things. And so when he gets there, they grab him. And they throw him into this well. And now he's a captive, and they're trying to decide what to do. This is Joseph's inciting incident in his life. But then rather than kill them, they, they had second thoughts about that because suddenly they saw a band of traveling Ishmaelites going by, and they said, hey, wait a minute, let's not kill him. Instead, let's make some money off Joseph. Let's sell him into slavery because the Ishmaelites deal in, in slave trade, in the slave trade. So they sold him to the Ishmaelites. And, and so the Ishmaelites take Joseph to Egypt, 200 miles away from his home. This is back when 200 miles was 200 miles. This is a long way from home. And the Ishmaelites, being good entrepreneurs, they flip him and they sell him for more money to a guy named Potiphar in Egypt. But one of the things that we are told now throughout this story from this point forward is that the Lord is with Joseph. The Lord is with Joseph. So even though his circumstances stink, we're told but the Lord was with Joseph. And so he rises to good standing in Potiphar's household. He begins as an outside slave, the lowest form of slave. Eventually he works his way into the inside and then he becomes the chief, the supervisor over all the inside slaves. He essentially becomes the chief operating officer of Potiphar Enterprises. Potiphar was a rich man. And it's been several years and he's grown into this big strapping young man in his 20s and he's handsome. And so Potiphar, who was a a very important man, would go on business trips a lot and pretty soon Ms. Potiphar begins to take notice of Joseph and she likes him and Potiphar is away quite often and so she starts to entreat Joseph to sleep with her and Joseph keeps saying no and finally one day she gets so angry at him that when Potiphar comes home she says, listen, that that Hebrew slave that you brought into our house, he tried to rape me. And so Potiphar had to throw him into prison. And not only did he throw him into prison, but he threw him into the worst part of the prison. They threw him into the dungeon with the absolute dregs of the prison. And he was there for years. But even there, we are told, the Lord was with Joseph. And he actually thrives in prison. We're told that he thrives. That the the, the people who run the prison start to trust Joseph and they start to give him authority and, and, and influence And then a couple of guys that were down there had some dreams. And since Joseph's an expert in dreams, they came to him and they said, can you interpret our dreams? And he does that for them. And then finally, a few years later, one of those guys that he interpreted the dreams for, Pharaoh had some very disturbing dreams and nobody could interpret his dreams. And the guy says, hey, I knew a guy in the dungeon named Joseph. You should get him. He'll interpret your dreams. And so Joseph comes out and the Lord was with Joseph and he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. And Pharaoh was so impressed that he elevated Joseph from the dungeon to the number two man in all of Egypt. And Egypt at the time was the greatest nation in the world, the most powerful nation in the world. So Joseph now is elevated to the number two most powerful person in the entire world. And he becomes the greatest chief operating officer in the history of Egypt. And the Lord was with Joseph. But then the whole purpose for God eventually elevating Joseph in the hierarchy of Egypt 
became obvious when a famine hits. A seven-year drought and famine hits Egypt, and, and, and it's disastrous, and it strikes all the surrounding areas as well, as well as all of Canaan. And so now Joseph's family, we switch back to seeing Joseph's family and Jacob, and he's sitting around with his sons, and they have nothing now. And he's saying, well, I, I heard about this grain czar dude in, in Egypt. And it was Joseph, but they didn't know it was, his, it was his son or their brothers. He said, I heard about this guy. He's got grain. Why don't a couple of you go and get some grain instead of us just sitting around here waiting to die? And so he sends a couple of his sons and they meet up with Joseph. And they do not recognize Joseph. Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. Understand, It's been 20 years since they sold Joseph into slavery. Joseph was 17 when they sold him. He's 37 now. And he's been inculcated into Egyptian culture. He dresses like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. Dare I say, he walks like an Egyptian. And they don't recognize him. They don't recognize him. And so Joseph decides he's not going to reveal himself to his brothers, but he plays a few games in order to get all of his brothers to come back. And so they come back the next year and they get there to buy some grain. And Joseph finally reveals himself and he, and he walks out and he says, Hey guys, I'm Joseph, your brother, the one that you sold into slavery. God did this to send me here in advance so that you would survive this famine. Isn't it great? We can be, all be back together again. And his brothers look at him, and rather than being glad it's Joseph, they are horrified. The second most powerful man in the world now is their brother Joseph, the guy they sold into slavery, the one they were going to murder. And right now they're going, we should have killed him. (laughs) I want you to think about this. Jesus gets crucified. Three days later, he rises from the grave. Imagine if Jesus had walked up to the very people The resurrected Jesus, imagine if he had walked up to the very people who crucified him. The very people who were mocking him and spitting in his face while he was on the cross. The the, the very people who who made fun of him. The very people who, who testified falsely against him if he walked up and said, hey, it's me, Jesus. Are they going to be glad to see him? No, they're going to be horrified. They're going to be horrified. But look at how Joseph handles it. Here's the end of the story starting in uh, chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brother saw, brothers saw that their father was dead, Jacob has now died, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Joseph has already forgiven them, told them they have nothing to worry about, that he's going to take care of them, but now Jacob is out of the way and they're wondering maybe he was just waiting for Jacob to die before he killed us. And so they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. They're lying about this, but they're trying something. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil against you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Remember the dream? A little bit of irony there. Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 
What Joseph did took humility. Think about yourself. If you're in that position of power and somebody who has wronged you to the extent that the brothers had wronged Joseph and they come to you and you have the power and the authority to do anything you want to them, what are you going to do? Our flinch is going to be toward justice and revenge and payback and all that stuff. What he did took humility and that was empowered by the good news of God. Redemption and restoration almost always begin with humility. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Have this same mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself. This is humility. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Revenge results when humility does not reign. Joseph did not seek revenge. Instead, he humbly sought redemption and restoration, and so should we. And the Gospel empowers us to do that. That's humility. Second of all, Joseph forgave his brothers. Now, what does it mean to forgive? We often gloss over this, but literally what it means to forgive is it means that you choose to eat the cost of the offense that was perpetrated against you. In other words, somebody offends you and it costs you something. In order to forgive them, you have to also eat that cost. Joseph did not do what you and I normally do with somebody who offends us. He did not seek justice. He did not seek revenge. He did not seek to be made whole. Not that you can ever make somebody whole who's, who's been offended. And, and let's not play around. This is not easy. He forgave them, but that's not an easy thing. It's not easy for you and I to do this either. Forgiving is, something that, is not something that happens and then it's over. Just forgive and forget. It's, physically, it's physiologically impossible to forget it. You don't just forgive once and then the whole thing is over. You have to forgive over and over and over. Sometimes it's a daily exercise. Sometimes it's an hourly exercise that you're forgiving people who have offended you. It's hard. But how hard would it be for Jesus to forgive those who crucified Him? And yet, what did He say? He's up on the cross and He's going... Father, you need to forgive them. You need to forgive them. And so if you and I claim the forgiveness of Jesus, we must also extend forgiveness to others. We do that in our families, just as Joseph did. And we do it in our church. We do it at work. We do it in all of our relationships. We eat offenses. You and I actually need to start becoming the justice that we're always seeking. Do you hear that? You and I are in the position when we forgive to become the justice that we're seeking to, to, to inflict on others. Joseph forgave his brothers. And not only that, he restored them. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And now you can kind of see what's beginning to happen to those five threads of flourishing that were destroyed. Instead of the negative downward spiral of sin and self-centeredness and self-protection and isolation and brokenness, humility and forgiveness start that upward positive spiral of covenant and intimacy and yieldedness and giving and trusted stewardship. And so in addition to humility and forgiveness, Joseph also extends grace. Forgiveness cleans the slate, but grace gives us the power to live. Grace is the environment of trust and mercy and flourishing. When Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, he writes this, The Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect 
in your weakness, Paul. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ manifested through His grace may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am at my greatest need for God, that's when I am the strongest. Just like Cain. In in, uh, verse 21 of chapter 50, uh, Joseph says to his brothers, do not fear, I will provide for you. That's a statement of grace. That's a statement about their future together. It's it's a statement about the environment of trust and mercy and flourishing that they were going to live out together. The Gospel is humility, forgiveness, and grace. That's, that's, That's what puts the brokenness back together. And that's who Jesus is. He's our Redeemer and our Restorer. Let me pray and David's going to come and lead us into our time of, of communion. God, thank You. Thank You that You are a God of grace, that You are a God of forgiveness, and that You are a humble God. That You demonstrate to us a humility that we struggle with, but that we, we desperately need. And so God, I pray that You would empower us in our weaknesses by Your grace to have that humility and forgiveness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.